Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nasalli ala Rasulik al-Kareem. Amma ba'ad. We express our, express our gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We see blessings of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And we are continuing with Iqbal. We are still on page one of knowledge and religious experience. So begin reading. The essence of religion, on the other hand, is faith. And faith like the bird, sees its trackless way unattended by intellect, which, in the words of the great mystic poet of Islam, only waylays the living heart of man and robs it of the invisible wealth of life that lies within. Okay, so, so another big heavy sentence. So, what are we saying here about Iman? Iman is the essence of religion. Yeah, so the first point is law is not the essence of religion. It is Iman. And then Iman, like the bird, what does it mean? Sees its trackless way unattended by intellect. I mean, taking it at, at face value, it's, it's not a rational process. Yeah. It's not a rational process. Uh, a person can fall into irrationality, but it is non-rational. Is what's the difference between non-rational and irrational? Irrational would be uh, nonsensical. So, so the steps of our salah—it's non-rational. Why do we do the steps that we do? Uh-huh. Well, we wouldn't call that irrational. We wouldn't call it nonsensical. And then, what is super-rational? Uh, I don't know how I would use it. Uh, I'd probably have to think about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, in the words of the great mystic poet of Islam, who is that poet? Uh, that way, let's look at the footnote. Uh, let's see, we've got it really fast, super fast, high speed. And this great mystical poet of Islam is, there's a lot of footnotes, is. Oh, so Matakatar, so this is uh, Atar, Conference of the Birds. Although, Montecatari would be more like logic of the birds, but okay, yeah. So the bird is, a bird is guided by like this instinctive navigation system. Yes, exactly. As opposed to having a road to follow. Mm That would be rational thought and logic. And... So that's kind of, is this argument about like Fikrah that we... Fitr might be one way to describe it, where is whereas it, it's innate. Uh, I don't want to limit it to fitra, okay. in the sense that it's a certain type of pleasure of the soul, a pleasure of the heart. I'm distinguishing between heart and soul; it's two different things. Okay. Yeah. So it's so he's comparing faith to the bird, right? Yeah. Okay. So intellect in the words of this poet guy, waylays the living heart. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, So what do you mean by waylay? Like, I would say obstructs or Mm -hmm. deviates. So, so, so what is the poet saying? If you don't have intellect with Iman, what happens? Um... 
like that line only waylays, waylays the living heart of man and robs it of the individual wealth, invisible wealth of life that lies within. Does that sound like positive or negative? It sounds like intellect is negative. Ah, no, I'm, I'm suggesting Iman without intellect is negative. Oh, okay, so it's saying... Here the problem is it in all of his commas. Mm-hmm. So, the essence of religion, on the other hand, is faith. Okay, done. Faith, like the bird, sees its trackless way unattended by intellect, which, in the words of the great mystic poet of Islam, only waylays the living heart of man and robs it of the invi- indi- invisible wealth of life that lies oh, within. Oh, okay, so it's saying that to make faith instinctive and non-rational is a mistake. Uh, or to keep it that way. Okay, and that's how it was in the past. Uh, not necessarily in the past, but that's how it is in the lives of a lot of people. Okay. And so so when you have only Iman, um, you will have taqwa to protect it. Okay, so far so good. But you're going to need intellect to deal with a lot of the challenges to your Iman. Uh-huh. And what is the opposite? The opposite is not to use your intellect. Right. Which means your Iman is going to be much more vulnerable. So... Uh, you're going to miss out on a lot of the joys and the treasures that come with Iman. I mean, I think that goes hand in hand with what we imagine this book to be about, that uh, one of the problems of the era is, so the central problem of every era is how do you get people to sustain or grow their Iman? And so the, the general answer is that every generation has to figure out how to repackage its, its Islam for its era, but what is that saying? For the intellectual, especially challenges of its era. Because all the challenges fundamentally are intellectual challenges, whether it's a social challenge, a financial challenge, those are all intellectual challenges. And so in our era, all the more so. So the person who doesn't need, or who isn't challenged by intellectual um, problems is exempt from this statement. Yeah, So, so for example, the common member of Jamaat al-Tablik, Tablik Jamaat. For them, it's you make your prayers, memorize your surahs, alhamdulillah, you're done. Well, I mean, there's more, but that's, that's the core of it. But when you have Iman erasing from a large percentage of the population, uh, the suggestion is that, okay, people need something that they're not getting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not sufficient to say it's because people are not practicing their religion. There's something that people need that they're not getting. And the first place to look is through the realm of intellect. Okay, so if I try to bring class into this, we've talked in the past about how like the elite class would do things that we would now consider like sinful. Keep going. Um, while the... I would say like working classes and lower classes had this sort of devotion that was rooted in like literature and poetry. Okay. Um, but then the elites kind of saw themselves as exempt from those. Oh, so laws. we're talking about things like drinking and stuff, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if if we can assume that a an upper class person has more access to like cosmopolitanism and like different perspective and critical thinking yeah um is 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 this is this phenomenon of 
questioning like more predisposed to upper classes versus lower classes? Um, maybe, but I'm not sure. I mean, like, that does, is, did that line of thought make sense? Mm -hmm. So what I'm suggesting is <clears throat> uh, the elite classes socioeconomically, mm -hmm. um, as well as the elite classes intellectually, are two different populations. Because think about it this way. Think of all the college professors versus the 1%. How many college professors are part of the 1%, right? But the 1% will have uh, all kinds of access to different cultures. The college professors may have access to different ideas. And so that's part of one place where I'm struggling. Um, uh, but then the other way that I'm struggling to, to respond, at least today, is to say that uh, in every social class, every intellectual, secular intellectual class, you'll have those people that are more reflective about the big questions of life. So regardless of upper, middle, lower, yeah, whatever. Right? exactly. That's what I'm suggesting. Okay. Did the poets that kind of informed these lower classes that we talked about in Shahab Ahmed's book, did those poets come from predominantly upper classes no. or lower classes? No. There are some poets that had the privilege of working on poetry, uh, either because they're coming from upper class, but more often because they're getting the patronage of the emperor, the sultan. Mm -hmm. So think of the way we think of artists today. Right. Uh, often artists are broke, right? But if they get the patronage of someone, I mean, also today in our capitalist culture, it's selling tickets or selling albums or whatever. But if you get the patronage of someone, then you can work on your art. Uh, uh, and so I don't know how many poets, however, were from the lowest classes of society. Uh, but I'm saying it doesn't necessarily mean that they're from the, the, the wealthy class. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, continue. Yet, it cannot be denied that faith is more than mere feeling. Okay. So, what do you think about that sentence? So, he's saying that it's undeniable that Iman is not just this instinctive... Yeah. You know, yeah, and this feeling of being pious. So people will attend a lecture by some celebrity preacher and claim they feel an iman rush. That's a feeling. Faith is more than that. Iman is more than that. Iman doesn't exclude that. But it is more than that. So the person who reaches like a sort of uh, intimacy with God, do they have that sweetness all the time or is that like a once in a while thing? So I don't want to say that it's one sweetness um, because there's an awareness or there's a sweetness that just comes with awareness in itself which is different than a feeling but it is a type of satisfaction you know like you're watching a movie and you figure out who done it Right, there's a there's a, a joy there. And so that is in a way how you're also dealing with the mysteries of how dunya operates. There's a joy to having a new understanding. And that is different than uh, that is part of the sweetnesses of Iman, but I'm saying there's also a different sweet feeling too. Okay. It has something like a cognitive content. 
and the existence of rival parties, scholastics and mystics, in the history of religion shows that idea is a vital element in religion. Okay, so let's take this piece by piece. It has something like a cognitive content. So what does that mean? A rational There is dimension. something rational there. Rational-ish. Uh, <clears throat> and the existence of rival parties. So in our uh, language, who are the scholars and who are the mystics? The jurists and like the Sufis. So the scholastics would be the mutakalimun or the theologians. Okay. And then the mystics would be the Sufis. And so the Mutakalimun, the theologians, are through an academic lens trying to define faith. Okay. So they will be getting into questions like free will and predestination. So they'll get into the philosophical questions. You know, how do you reconcile suffering? Uh, how do you reconcile hell with Allah's mercy? Okay. And the Sufis are different. They're like, yeah, we don't, that's not our realm. Yet both are talking about faith. Both are talking about living faith. <coughs> but then he says, in the history of religion, shows that that idea is a vital element of religion. So what's idea? Um, rational understandings? I wouldn't take it even that far. I'd say it's a pre-thesis. It's an idea, a thought. So beyond feeling. So it's in a different realm of you than feeling. Okay. Does that presuppose rationality? Uh, what does that mean? Like an idea by default is rational? Uh, I think he would say it is something like a cognitive content. <laughs> so it's in the same universe. Uh, but, for example, do you think a baby can have an idea? Just an idea know. in its most rudimentary form. I don't know enough about developmental like, psychology to, okay. to answer that. How about uh, a six-month-old who doesn't I, I yet think, speak? I think so. I think so, too. Yeah. Uh, does a baby also? Perhaps. You know. It's probably not at all developed, or not at all complex. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be only informed in need. Uh, but all in his best, you know. But the point I'm making with those examples is, if we even say an eight-month-old has an idea, how much rationality does an eight-month-old have? Like, they have some. It's like cause and effect, you know. Things like that potentially. Yeah. So there's the rudiments. Hey, what else? Um, so, did cognitive mean the same thing then that it means now? In terms of like, I'm I'm thinking of it in, in the lens of psychology. How would you say it? Mean? What would you say it means now? Uh, like, it is a certain like what is it? Right side of the brain, left side of the like front. front. That's usually your frontal cortex, probably. Okay. Um, so cognitive, as I'm understanding here, uh, he's putting in the same universe as rational. Okay. As we speak of when we're speaking of rational. Okay. In contrast to or with emotional. So emotions are, are non-rational or irrational? Uh, uh, 
possibly irrational, possibly non-rational. So where do the jurists fit in in this rival party thematic? So <clears throat> the legend is that he had a sister book that he was working on called The Reconstruction of Religious Law in Islam. So in essence, this book is about the scholastics, the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam. Mm -hmm. So that's how I'd answer it. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a different... Paradigm? Yeah. Yeah. But I would suspect you'd also say that, the, I mean, we do have, we're going to see a little bit, or a few references here and there, but I would suggest he would say that the jurists uh, are not in the field of helping someone's iman. They're in the field of, at best, stabilizing someone's iman through action. Mm -hmm. So historically have, historically jurists have also been scholastics and jurists have also been mystics, right? So those, think of these as three different certifications, so to speak. Okay. So, historically, it was not uncommon for a person to be all three, yes. It was also not uncommon for the super jurist to be one person you go to and the super mystic to be a different person you go to. You know, th okay. so, so like Abu Hanifa is a jurist. We do not regard him as a mystic. Right. Right. Um, Imam Ghazali comes along and he tries to construct an Islam that is unifying it all. So we talked last time about who has, like, who has claimed to truth. Yeah. So these are three pathways of ach achieving that ultimate reality. Of achieving a touch with truth. So one of the in in religious conversations, one of the most common examples uh, is either the example of the blind man and the elephant, or the room people in a dark room with an elephant, and then they're asked to describe. What is an elephant? And one guy is holding the tail, one guy is touching the belly, the other guy is touching the trunk. And so they're each defining the, the elephant according to what they're feeling. And the idea is none of them have, have complete reality. They each have a taste of reality. And so the jurist has one realm of truth. The scholastic has another realm of truth. The Sufi is seeking to be the closest realm of truth, but it's also possibly fair to say it's a different realm of truth. Okay, or a so piece of the pie that is truth. So, Shahad al-Wujud would be seeing the whole elephant? Or what? Not seeing the whole elephant, but seeing that there's a whole elephant in front of you. And not seeing anything else. Okay. Would that still be in the dark room? Or would that be in... Like, would you be able to physically see the elephant? That's a good question. Okay, so even if we say you're seeing the, so you're seeing the whole elephant in front of you with all the lights on, you're still not seeing the whole elephant, right? So it might be something like that. I have not attained that, so I can't really <laughs> tell you what it is. How do you tell if a person has, like, I just want to meet someone who has this and, like, learn? What will it give you? I just want to see how it looks like in, 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 in practice. Isn't that what the Prophet is, peace be upon him? 
Right. Yeah, but... <laughs> Meaning, with the prophet, we have someone who is closer to true reality than anyone that has ever walked before or since. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I want somebody I could ask questions to. And I think I think that I think just a lot of times you want someone to tell you like exactly what to do to solve your own the prophet. So well, okay, that person will not necessarily be able to do that. Yeah, there you're talking about a mentor, right? Who, you know, but yeah. we would like to think that a person who's reached that point of reality has that. Not necessarily. That's uh, we'll see if we get to it, inshallah. Uh, another of the um, uh, lectures begins with uh, him contrasting the prophet with the Sufi. Peace be upon him. Mm-hmm. And the difference is that the Sufi wants to stay with God. Whereas the Prophet has this immediacy with God, for lack of a better term, and then comes back to our world and guides us to there. So he has the night journey, but then he also came back to Earth. Uh, Apart from this? Apart from this, religion on its doctrinal side, as defined by Professor Whitehead, is a system of general truths which have the effect of transforming character when they are sincerely held and vividly apprehended. Okay, so let's take it piece by piece. What does it mean, religion on its doctrinal side? Like, theologically? Aqidah. Aqidah. Yeah. So Professor Whitehead's theology, I think his school was called called Process Theology, but I could be wrong. Um... And his books are here in the library. I don't think I have them here. Um, so he's speaking of religion through the lens of aqidah to be a system of general truths. So far, so good, yeah? Mm-hmm. Which have the effect of transforming character when they are sincerely held and vividly apprehended. So he is arguing that if you only held on to aqidah and did that very ser- sincerely, that can also transform you. Which I think is a neat idea. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, that's like... So, Aqlida is stuff like... That kind of... Defines your relationship with God and the, and the relationship God has with creation. Part of it. Sort of, or to make it even easier, Aqlida is basically saying... If you claim La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah is true, then it means these are other things you have to take as true. Period. So this is another way of saying that all 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 the Aqlida describe this ultimate reality, right? It's uh, so I'm not saying something that different from you. I'm just qualifying the language. I'm saying Aqida is is saying these are things in the unseen that we take as truth. And they describe this ultimate reality. Pieces of it, sure. Okay. Um, so he's, or is it a he or she? He, yeah, they're usually almost always he's. Okay. Um, this is pre-modern era of academics. He's saying if you sincerely can understand and apprehend this ultimate reality. No, nope, that's what he's saying. He's saying if you hold tight to the list of things that are in Aqida. Forget the idea of ultimate reality for a moment. Okay. 
forget, uh, replace alternate reality with the unseen. And we're saying these are things that are in the unseen that you take as true. So, for example, if you believe in angels, that the, the, the angel on your shoulders, that, that, that will transform your behavior. That will affect your behavior, yeah. And so, if you take that whole list of the Qida and only had that, then that can transform you if you're taking it sincerely. So how do you how do you sincerely apprehend and hold aqidah without conceiving of ultimate reality? Um, <clears throat> I don't think aqidah is trying to tell you what is ultimate reality. I think aqidah is only trying to tell you things you have to take as true. But we described last time truth as ultimate reality. Yes, correct. Truth, capital T, yes. So I'll change true in my usage right now to factual. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So another is haq versus haqiqa. Haq would be something that is true. Haqiqa is the trueness of the whole thing, reality. So if you if you if you think about it, if I think about it in the line, in the lens of facts, we think of like scientific truths that we've arrived at as facts. Give me an example. Um I was try- I'm trying to think of something like that's social in nature, but like gravity. I don't think we have, but yeah, keep going. We accept that as fact. We accept that it's a, that there's an effect, but yeah, yeah keep going. <laughs> I think it's harder to come up with what are some scientific truths. Like, yeah, the scientific method is based on like testability. Okay. Um, scientific truth. Okay, scientific truth is based on facts, philosophy, religion, uh, feelings, prejudice have nothing to do with science, only facts matter, verified. So scientific truth would be, there are 270-something pages to this book. This weighs such and such. If I drop it, uh, I can tell you the speed with which it will fall, or the, the acceleration. Based on, like, observations? Yeah. Okay. So, Aqidah is facts derived from not the scientific method. From what? From cognition. From text. Cognitive interaction with text. From text. And so, Aqidah would also be potentially debated and so the cognitive interaction would be essentially where people are not disagreeing. So how long is, a, is an Aqidah book? That's if you look at the pages. If you put it in prose, four paragraphs. Uh, so level of Aqidah, level one, is La ilaha illa Muhammad Rasulullah. One sentence. Level two would be Amantu billahi wa malaikatihi wa kutubihi wa rasuli, so forth and so on. So it's seven items. Not even a paragraph. Mm-hmm. Okay. Aqidah of Imam Tahawi. The book is fat because you have Arabic and English and you put all kinds of spaces in between, but it's literally like three paragraphs. See what I'm saying? Uh-huh. That's where people are not disagreeing. So this is not analogous, analogous, analogous at all to scientific Correct. It's... Method. 
it's nothing to do with scientific method. Uh, scientific method, I think, is often very much not as big of a thing as we pretend it to be. Okay. But the idea here being that text is saying X, Y, Z about the unseen. Saying these are things that are factual about the unseen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Science, science is trying to derive or is looking at facts of the seen realm. It doesn't even have anything to say about even the possibility of an unseen realm. Right. Okay, okay keep going. Now, since the transformation and guidance of man's inner and outer self is the essential aim of religion, it is obvious that the general truths which it embodies must not remain unsettled. Okay, let's take it piece by piece. Now, since the transformation and guidance of man's inner and outer life is the essential aim of religion. So what do you think about that? The essential aim of religion is to transform you within and without. Which is already making a claim that you have an internal condition and an external condition. Mm -hmm. And so for us, usually the realm of the external condition is going to be law. The jurist. And the internal condition will often be the realm of the Sufis. Okay. Or Tazkiyah, Ihsan. So, he's saying that's the essential aim. And we could modify this slightly to say the transformation towards a particular goal, model, ideal. Okay. Right? In the second half it says, It is obvious that the general truths which it embodies must not remain unsettled. What does that mean? So you have to question the general truths, the system of Akhida, that... Say the opposite. He's saying that <clears throat> the truths must be settled. Must not remain unsettled, so should remain settled. Yeah. Academic writing, you know, you got to wonder about these people. But the, the, this is a guy who writes fantastic poetry, right? Mm-hmm. So, do you see what we're saying? <clears throat> that the general truths must be confirmed, uh-huh. agreed upon, settled. That makes sense. Because if it, if it was up in the air, then it wouldn't be a concrete force in someone's life. Yeah, and it would not be the foundation. How could you make it a foundation? Right. Uh, if the foundation is not founded, foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we, we we said that outer life is the realm of law, law and inner life is the realm of the Sufis. Sufis. Yeah, very often, but the truths are the realm of what? Truths are in the realm of the scholastic. The scholastic, the theologian, the mutakallim. So basically, in an individual's path to ultimate reality, they have to rely on all three dimensions. At least those three, there might be more. These are all individual. Right. We haven't talked about a collective. So then why, if, if we can agree that we have to rely on all of these dimensions to achieve, to... to, to pursue this reality uh-huh. why is there so much division between them uh, meaning from each other yeah why why are they rival parties 
essentially, think of it uh, a couple ways. One, do you get that feeling that they're all divided when you go through the Quran? No. No, you have to extrapolate, you have to extract them from the Quran. Yeah. So in the Quran, it's all synthesized. Mm-hmm. Do you get that from the Prophet, peace be upon him? No. In the Prophet, it's all synthesized. Right. But for us to understand through which to have material to grow and to try to address future questions, that's why these fields had to form. So I think we might have talked about this. Uh, why did the feel of what we're calling scholasticism here? or Muttakalimun, or Ilm al-Kalam, why did it begin? It was a reaction to the Armutazirites, right? Way before them. But before them. actually, no. Uh, it, was, it was sort of related to them, but before their peak. So Abu Hanifa, jurist, is seeing all these people who are claiming to be Muslim, but he's seeing problems in their doctrine. It would be like today a Sunni looking at someone who's part of the Nation of Islam, Mm-hmm. Someone in the nation of Islam wholeheartedly considers himself to be Muslim. Right. Yet, uh, we'd say there's some serious problems in your doctrine. Right? And so then he's saying that, and they're also believing in the Shahada. So Abu Hanifa's saying, all right, if you believe in the Shahada, you got to believe these other things too that are in the text. And so that's where the field, the field is rising, essentially out of a social need. And that social need could be a lack of answers or it could be a threat. And those two might essentially be the same thing to a person's faith. So, what was that quote where that one person said? Like, it was a very hostile quote towards, like, from a jurist towards mystics or something like that. Look on there. <laughs> okay. I think we mentioned it in, in, in the last book we did. Mm. Okay. Continue? Yeah. No one. No one would hazard action on the basis of a doubtful principle of conduct. So that's continuing the same point, right? right. The truth must be settled. Okay, continue. Indeed, in view of its function. Religion stands in greater need of a rational foundation of its ultimate principles than even the dogmas of science. All right, try to explain this one. Okay. So, it's comparing science and religion. So far, so good. Uh, Start with the part about the dogmas of science. Do they need a rational foundation? So, yes. Yeah. Because it's, you're interpreting the observable observable Mm -hmm. world through your own intellect. Mm-hmm. Or through measurement and such. Right. That uh, uh, then you might be using intellect or consideration to try to put it all together. Right. But measurement is such a big part of it all. Observation is a big part of it all. Mm-hmm. And so now, compare that with religion. So, we've established that it's not the same foundation, but yeah. it needs a rational cognitive foundation okay um and he's saying that it needs it more than science even yeah why um in view of its function and the function is think about what we just said about the dogmas of science like what are we saying about science things are observable things are measurable can you 
what can you observe in religion? Especially about Iman. Conduct. Possibly, but you can have an atheist who has good conduct. What can you measure? You can measure... You measure how much someone prays, but that person could also be a hypocrite or it could also be an atheist. Right. There's the point. So if we don't have those things that are observable, okay, then we need something else to keep religion on a strong foundation. Thus we need a strong and rational foundation. It has to make sense somewhere in its core. So what are alternatives to a rational foundation? That you just believe it because it is, even if it makes no sense. Right? We found what our fathers are doing. And what's the response? Even if their fathers have no sense. That's the critique in the Quran over and over again. Right. You're following something that makes no sense. Is that the only alternative to that? Uh, what else could, uh, could there be? I'm sure there's more, but those are, that's the first one that's coming to mind. Or that people just abandon religion. So, we said that this book is arguing for the necessity of religion. Yeah, or for the necessity. It's, it's uh, I think, assumed is the necessity of religion. And it's arguing that we need to figure out these rational foundations for our era. So, who argues that... Is there a scholar that argues that religion is necessary? Is there a Muslim scholar? I think it's just assumed in the discussion. But they will entertain ideas like, well, can you go through life without religion? Sure. Can you have a fair governance without religion? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Is that, is that, do we get everything from that sentence? I think so. I mean, who knows? There's probably much more that we're not even skimming the surface on. No. So, ultimate principles, what are those? Is that so ultimate principles here is is uh, speaking in Aristotelian language. Uh, when you get a chance, Google it to to get a sense of what we're talking about here. But it's basically saying like, here's some principles of reality. We exist. There is motion. There is color. Uh, <clears throat> then there's like secondary principle. Color, I think, is actually a secondary principle. Um, and so it's basically trying to figure out what is the structure of reality, which then helps us figure out what is the structure of religion, or vice versa. So, okay, yeah. Do we have time to continue? Yeah, we got a little more time. Okay, sure. Science may ignore a rational metaphysics. Indeed, it has ignored it so far. Religion can hardly afford to ignore the search for a, re a reconciliation of the oppositions of experience and a justification of the environment in which humanity finds itself. Okay. <coughs> so science may ignore a rational metaphysics. So science can ignore logic. Science can ignore Kant. It doesn't need it to operate. Right. Science doesn't need philosophy to operate. Doesn't it? Like what when you took chemistry and, and or, or if you take physics, organic chemistry, where's philosophy? Mm 
doesn't it assume that, like, Plato's, like, Shadow World and all that stuff? Do you need to know any of that? I mean, well, when you say need to... That's what we're saying. The average person doesn't need to, but I'm that's... I'm saying the average scientist. But even if you don't need it, it's still founded on it. No, not necessarily. It's... Uh, had Plato never existed, does that mean we're not going to have any science? No, I don't think so. I think we'll still have you know, just about everything we have. The categories might be the same, might be different. I mean, we have Aristotle's categories of natural philosophy, which is essentially what we call science. But, no. There is a certain ide uh, idea of philosophy in the sense of distinguishing between what is physics versus chemistry versus biology. But not really. But that we're just talking about philosophy in general. Here we're talking about rational metaphysics. How Met does he define metaphysics? Metaphysics, he's probably speaking straight philosophy, which would be, in our language, often morality, or not morality, but uh, the realm of internal structure. So the metaphysics of morals, of Immanuel Kant is looking at trying to figure out what is the internal structure of morality. So physics is the structure of everything. Metaphysics would be the internal structure of physics. So how does that actually work? Often the practical comes before the theory in the sense that people are doing this thing called magic. And someone else comes along and starts studying it and starts deriving a philosophy from it. So this thing that people are doing called physics, whether it is Galileo dropping the balls from the Tower of Pizza or whatever it was, he's doing that. Someone later comes along and looks at all these people that are called scientists and then derives a philosophy from it. Usually the theory comes later. We would think that the theory comes first. That's how it's taught. Mm -hmm. But in, in the history of, of humanity, the theory often comes later. Right. I think of the Sahaba versus all these sciences. Wait, what, what, what do you mean? The, science, the Sahaba, how much theory do they? Yeah, none. Yeah, it's the theoretical ideas comes later, looking at the Sahaba. Make sense? So when you say metaphysics is the internal structure, that's not just a physics, it's about everything? It's a generic term for internal structure. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, science doesn't mean any of that stuff. Indeed, it has ignored it so far, so yeah. it's... I mean, it doesn't need it to operate. Okay. You know, think of any advanced field in science, you don't need any of this stuff, right? But then someone 100 years later comes along and studies all this year's or this world's, this era's developments, and starts developing a philosophy for how we did science in 2019. Yeah. But what about, that, what about that next sentence? Religion can hardly afford. Religion can hardly afford. So religion can hardly afford to ignore the search for a reconciliation of the oppositions of experience on one side and a justification of the environment in which humanity finds itself. When he's saying justification of the environment, I think he's saying an explanation for our predicament. Why are we in this world? Mm. So, like, why? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. 
Um, so it's he's saying there's an urgency to reconcile these two things. Yeah, or at least a need. And but I think he I think here he's saying there's a need, but I think with this text he's also saying there's an urgency. So so there are elements of religion that need to make sense. Mm-hmm. What so when what is an opposition of what are the oppositions of experience? So you know we're living in life. We're born. We're born. We live life. We eat. We drink. We copulate. We reproduce. We die. And then, but how do we get here? And why are we here? So religion is giving an answer to that. Science is giving a partial answer, saying, "Well, you evolved." doesn't say how things began so what is opposing what so it's as though the two don't make sense one is saying we are of the earth and and the other is saying no we are not of the earth that is why professor whitehead has acutely remarked that the ages of faith are the ages of rationalism. Yeah, the next sentence too. But to rationalize faith is not to admit the superiority of philosophy over religion. Okay, stop. So Professor Whitehead has remarked that the ages of faith are the ages of rationalism. What do you think that means? There's a, so by rationalism, we're talking about intellectual thought. And that might look like philosophy, that might look like science, mm-hmm. scientific advancements. Um, so those coincide with religious, like pre- the prevalence of, relig- of faith. Yeah, or the growth of faith, yeah. I don't know if Whitehead is making the growth of faith synonymous with the growth of people identifying with religion. I don't think yeah. Iqbal would do that. So he, sa- he says faith and not religion. Yeah. But I don't know if he's using those interchangeably. But because Iqbal is doing it, uh, I think he Iqbal is saying that faith is not synonymous with religious identity or even religious attendance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a thing of faith. Like a common talking point is that one, in our community at least, is when when the Muslims practice Islam, everything was cool and like people were prosperous. Yeah, it's it's uh, a nice slogan. How does that relate to this? So we would say, we would say, well, why is it that the Muslims are not practicing today? Mm-hmm. And so in this book, we're saying there's some intellectual needs related to religion that are not being fulfilled. Okay. So even though we have people professing Islam, yeah, and we have a billion and a half people professing right. Islam, right? We we don't have. This faith. is not an age of faith, right? And so it's an age of secularity. Yeah, absolutely. Thus reducing religion to what? An identity. An identity. So Whereas your heart may actually be secular. And another way to think about it, you bring up secularization is a good point. Uh, I don't know that we really comprehend how secular our hearts are. And I'm talking about the religious people. Mm-hmm. The pious people. I don't think we realize how secular our hearts are. I don't know if I realize how secular my heart is. Yeah, because yeah, like one, we talk about like embodied religion and things like that, mm-hmm. and like lived tradition. Like I don't think I don't think 
Like I can I can't even conceive of that. Like when we talk about the prophet and how the Sahaba trusted him enough to like follow him. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I, I, like everything is founded on a non-religious basis. Mm-hmm. And you mean like yeah. his trust? They're trusting him and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the idea of having a religion was assumed, mm-hmm. right? Uh, meaning, I don't know if they could conceive of not having a belief system, mm-hmm. right? Whereas here, it's almost, it's except for the fact of human history, I think it's harder to conceive of having a religion and putting time into it. Mm-hmm. So when one like social scientists theorize that uh, religion is like a primitive form of solidarity and like there have emerged out of that vacuum things like civic religion and like nationalism and patriotism and things like that. Yeah. Um, those are all they're not they're not as personally revolutionary as this encompassing embodied religion that that Islam should be. Are you asking a question? No. <laughs> I mean, as a thesis, it sounds pretty cool, but uh, uh, I don't know if I understand. I think I'm saying that we have these identities based on non-religious foundations, mm-hmm. um, but none of them come close to the embodied religion that I think Islam sh- ideally should be practiced. I would say that is a strong thesis, yeah. And so why am I saying calling it a strong thesis? I'm saying, <clears throat> so in the same way I'm saying I don't know how secular I am, it also means I don't know how secular I am not. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, which then means this thing that I believe that I have, that is Iman, that I believe I have, and inshallah Allah will sustain it in me and make it grow. What is it compared to the Iman of a companion or or tabi or tabi tabi, right? Uh, and I'm not even being arrogant. I'm not saying that you know it's one tenth or even a hundredth, but is it in the same ballpark? Uh, I don't know. Having said that, I think uh, uh, in our society, the first issue is idea of religion as a category mm-hmm. automatically creates a split. Right. There's that which is religious, that which is not. Yeah. And so that's one fundamental difference. Another is in the realm of identity. Uh, you know, uh, how much of me being Muslim is the fact that that is my inheritance racially, ethnically, nationally, right? Subcontinent, Pakistani, right? Uh, as well as just immediately with, with my parents. If we were to erase that from my memory, uh, what will I still have in my heart? Maybe nothing. Hopefully something much more than that. But these are the questions related to today's era. Even the simple categorization of religion as a thing. Mm-hmm. When we use the term deen and use it synonymous with religion, it is doing disservice to the word deen. Mm-hmm. Because I can be, in, the, in that measurement, I can be a pious Muslim and through and through a capitalist or a communist in this modern format. Right. But in the deen perspective... I might actually be a capitalist who also prays. So that's my dominant system. 
but then the question is what preoccupies like your decisions or the, like the, the, the thought processes behind your decisions mm-hmm. it's the conscious decisions that a, cap, that a person living in a capitalist uh, society makes are informed like the conscious decisions at least are I think informed more by religion than by capitalism which is in a taken for granted like background yeah and so I'm saying is the taking for granted the background the default or is it the conscious realm? I would say what matters more is the conscious. In a given moment, yes. Uh, holistically, I don't know. In terms of in 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 Islam, in terms of salvific value, yeah. The conscious decisions are all that matter. Uh, the choices are, are all that matter, but think of the choices that I'm not pursuing. So there's one sense of looking at the choices of, okay, here's the moment that I am. I mean, do I pray? Do I not pray? Do I give this person money? Do I not give this person money? But then there are also the macro choices that I'm making about what I'm going to dedicate my life to. What if you can't conceive of the macro? Okay, that would be one thing. But I think all the passages in the Quran that speak about war, that speak about crime and punishment, that speak about justice, if I'm reading and reflecting on the Quran... It's raising those questions. And either I take that as something to consider or I just slide past them. And I think most of us slide past them because we don't know any better. So the average person, do they, does, does the average person embody capitalism? I think so. In the way that religion was embodied by the era, by people the, of the era? Yeah. Consider the clothes that we're wearing. Yeah. It fits, it passes the test in terms of Islamic law for what I have purchased. Uh, but is it an ethical purchase from the moment <clears throat> of it being cotton mm-hmm. all the way to the moments on my pants? Uh, I suspect we'd probably say there's a million different ways where it contradicts Islam. Mm-hmm. Let's stop right here. Okay. And so what sentence are we continuing with? We are continuing with uh, philosophy, no doubt. Yeah, philosophy, no doubt. All right, inshallah. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafiruka natubi ilayk. Wa akhirid da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.